Welcome back to the program. Every morning we get the latest news and we get depressed about the state of the world. We forget that in some ways we've indeed made some progress. Fifty years ago this summer, Americans, both black and white, gave their last full measure of devotion in an effort to register African-American voters in Mississippi. The violence that resulted, the death of three civil rights workers, and the beatings and the church bombings, and the effort to prevent Americans from voting is a stain that shall forever be remembered. For those that have forgotten or weren't around in that period, a new work by my guest Matt Heron is a powerful reminder. Matt was the progenitor of an effort to chronicle those events and in so doing captured a pivotal moment in American history. The result just released by University Press of Mississippi is Mississippi Eyes. Matt Heron has been a photographer, writer, and photojournalist for most of his career. He's been an ocean voyager, an environmental activist, and a labor organizer. It is my pleasure to welcome Matt Heron here to talk about Mississippi Eyes. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to have you here. This was part of something at the time called the Southern Documentary Project. Tell us about that. Well, I had moved to Mississippi with my wife and my two children in the summer of 1963. We came down uh, with a number of purposes, but mainly to work in the civil rights movement. We were the only family with children to move south and join the movement in our primary concern was that if we did this, our children would be safe. We were told that if we lived in a white neighborhood in Jackson, we, we could do that, so we did. Um, I, had, I was just starting my career as a photojournalist. I'd had a uh, picture in life and uh, an eight-page story in look, but more importantly, I knew all of the uh, editors in New York, and they knew me. So I thought I could uh, move south and have enough work to support my family. But uh, my major purpose was to help along the civil rights movement. So I helped uh, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, set up a darkroom in Atlanta. And when I wasn't uh, doing uh, assignments, which was most of the time, I was also shooting for uh, the civil rights movement. I thought of myself as wearing three hats. Hat number one, of course, was my profession as as a magazine photographer. Uh, Hat number two was as propagandist in the best sense of that word for the civil rights movement. I took pictures which I hoped would advance the cause, and I uh, covered demonstrations sometimes just to be there with a camera would uh, uh, tamp down the violence. And uh, thirdly, I had met early in my career uh, with a well-known social documentary photographer, Dorothea Lang, who uh, is associated with uh, those historic photographs of the uh, Farm Security Administration, Mm -hmm. the Dust Bowl uh, privation of the 30s and 40s. At any rate, Dorothea had a very strong influence on me, and she convinced me that photography could be more than a neat profession, that it could actually be a life calling, and uh, that one had to take it seriously and make serious sacrifices if one was going to be a documentary photographer. In the spring of 1964, uh, the Mississippi folks were 
preparing to bring a thousand mostly Ivy League college students into the South to work in civil rights uh, activities, to teach in freedom schools, to uh, do voter registration work. And I was trying to figure out, well, what could I do to, you know, supplement what everybody else is doing? And I decided to try and form a team of documentary photographers. Turned out that uh, the team that I did put together was probably the first time a group of documentary photographers entered the field since the Farm Security Administration team of the 30s and 40s. At any rate, uh, I went to New York. I managed to raise some money. I recruited photographers. And we set about in June, July, and August of 1964 not only to cover what was happening in the civil rights movement, but also to try and reflect the manner of life uh, that was living in the South, particularly in black communities. So I photographed a country church meeting, um, people... Um, one of my photographers covered the Vernon Damer family in, in uh, Meridian, Mississippi. Vernon Damer was a um, <clears throat> major civil rights leader, and he tend, he actually photographed the family album, which was a potpourri of uh, all skin colors you could imagine, all related to the Damers, who had started the, the family history of slaves, in a plantation there, had intermarried with the local Choctaw Indians and had been subject to the privations of white plantation owners. So they had this remarkable family album, which was burned two years later when the Klan attacked Damer and uh, burned down his house. And he was actually died in the flames or died the next day in the hospital trying to defend uh, family in the house. So we ended up with uh, the Vernon Damer family album, and they're starting a museum to his honor, and I will then reconstruct the family album and provide them with it based on the photographs that George Ballas, one of my photographers, took. Talk a little bit about the dangers that were inherent in what you were doing. What did you sense that the danger was? And then tell us a little bit about what happened in Selma, where that danger became very real. I was scared most of the time. Uh, and I was surrounded by people, young black guys mostly, who were doing things that I, I couldn't believe. I mean, the courage... Their courage, I think, came from their sense of conviction that they had to uh, change things and from a deep sense of wrong uh, of the things that had been perpetrated against them. I didn't have that. Uh, my life had been fairly peaceful up until then. So the way I protected myself was sort of I had this armor plate, which was my camera's. I strapped them on, and as soon as I was covered with cameras, I usually worked with three Nikons, I could go places and do things that I was terrified to do otherwise. 
I think I think one of the most frightening things was you never knew when you were safe and when you were in danger. You could be driving along a road and suddenly there was a pickup truck following you with a, a rifle or a rack behind the driver. Uh, or you could be chased across a lonely country stretch of highway or all kinds of things could happen. So um, I developed a series of rules to protect myself. and But mostly it was just try to figure out how to stay alive. I had one of the stars who worked for me, David Prince, uh, had a life assignment to go into Selma, Alabama, and uh, cover efforts there in voter registration. Selma was, I think, one of the scariest and the worst towns in the South. In many ways, Alabama was more frightening than Mississippi because it was better organized. It really... It was really kind of a, a highly professional fascist state in some ways. They had dossiers on a lot of us. and um, So Prince came into Selma and went straight to the office of Sheriff Jim Clark, who was the law in Selma, a very violent man with a posse of volunteer thugs whose main qualification qualification could had to be that they were quote white men of voting age uh, and he reported to Clark and before long the uh, district attorney came into Clark's office with an article that uh, the writer who was working with Prince had written for a northern magazine that was very uh, uncomplimentary of southern segregationists and Clark advised him to get the hell out of town. Instead, they ended up uh, photographing a mass meeting uh, that evening, and at the end of the and the sheriff and, and his posse were waiting outside, and when folks filed out of the meeting why they were attacked by the, the, the posse, Prince attempted to photograph this. He was... Uh, clubbed, his cameras were smashed, he fled to the rear of the church, tried to climb a sampling to get a sapling to get over the fence, and uh, there was a shot and uh, the top of the tree fell off just above his head, and he was warned that he'd be dead if he tried anything more. So he climbed down, he was attacked by uh, a man with a, a couple of men with baseball bats, he crawled under the church. He found half the congregation was there already. Somebody threw a, uh, a tear gas bomb under the church. He was blinded by that. He was dragged to the front of the church, and they were about to kill him, I think. Um, and the district attorney, the same district attorney, arrived and persuaded them to not to kill him, probably because it would look bad in the papers. Um and uh, he was told to get out of town, and if he stopped, they would kill him. So I arrived shortly after that and found myself that evening in the same church, a same kind of mass meeting going on, and the sheriff's posse waiting outside. And <laughs> say I was freaked <laughs> is a great understatement. There was another journalist uh, in the church. We were the only two, and I sort of 
poured out my woes to him and told him what had happened the night before. And he said, well, let's leave early. So we sauntered out the front of the church while the meeting was still going on and ambled over to where the posse was standing. And in my best New Orleans fake accent, I, you know, chatted with them. And when the meeting was over and the folks filed out, there was no violence because journalists were present. So those, I mean, that's just one story of many things that happened to us during that summer. Was the opposite true on occasion where having journalists present and and having things photographed actually may have created more violence in some cases because of of the, the show the authorities wanted to put on, the message that they wanted to send? Certainly, um... There were times when the presence or absence of photographers made absolutely no difference. I'm thinking not of 64, but of the attack on marchers at the Edmund Pettus Bridge outside Selma, the beginning of the first Selma march in 1965. And uh, Charlie Moore covered that. And there, are the, and in fact, there were three, three major television networks uh, there. And they all showed pictures of the violence that night. I think ABC was interrupted the trial at Nuremberg to show what was going on in Selma, and the audience thought it was Nazis attacking Jews. But by and large, cameras did tend to reduce the violence. I know that SNCC sometimes just gave cameras to their workers, and said, "Pretend you're journalists," hmm. and that would that would often uh, change things a bit, but not always. Talk, it was sometimes hard to predict. Tell us a little bit about how the media responded to these photos. You you were doing work at the time for Life and Look and the various other publications at the time. How did the, these various publications look upon some of the photos that you were taking, and were they nervous about running some of them? I think, uh, by and large, they were on our side, but they didn't always understand the issues, and uh, uh, there would be, from time to time, editorial reluctance to get involved, but I know that uh, Life was very concerned about what was happening that summer, but they also had other agendas, which often got in the way. I know... uh, Dave Prince uh, became very close to the Cheney family, uh, the family of, of James Cheney, one of the three civil rights workers who was murdered in Shelby County early in that summer. And uh, uh, Dave particularly befriended Ben Cheney, the younger brother of James Cheney, and did a very moving essay, which is in the book, on uh, how this young kid responded to his brother's death and tried to figure out what his new role was as a man in the family and all the media attention and so on. But Life decided that um, they wanted an exclusive coverage of the funeral. So they persuaded a local Catholic uh, uh, minister to go to Mrs. Cheney and convince her to have James Cheney buried in a local Catholic uh, graveyard. Mrs. Cheney happened to be Catholic. And the, but their purpose was 
if they could make this happen, why they would have an exclusive uh, entry to the graveyard, and no other no other competing media would get get to be there. Uh, and Prince was appalled by this, and he refused to cooperate. And they threatened him and said that he would never work for Life again and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, you know, ultimately, that attempt failed. I won't say that was typical of what happened, but it does illustrate the fact that there were other agendas at work, and uh, uh, our purpose was pretty clear. Our purpose was to to make public what was happening and to garner support around the country, particularly among liberal groups in the more north. So I think it was a mixed bag. To what extent were you and the four other photographers that you worked with in this, to what extent were you impacted personally by all of this? Oh, it changed our lives. Uh, uh, certainly my time, the, the years that I was in the South photographing, probably produced my best work. And uh, certainly were the period when I was most intensely uh, involved in the act of photography. I mean, in some of these situations, I totally would lose myself. I covered the Selma March uh, the following year, and I spent 50 miles walking backwards, looking through my camera lens at uh, marchers. I have no memory of what I ate, where I slept, anything that happened during that period, but the photographs other people said were the best I ever did. Mississippi was a, a strange experience. It was frightening, almost terrifying at times, and yet the state and the people had a strange grip on us. I mean, I, I remember flying back to Jackson from probably Atlanta, during this one point during the middle of the summer, and as the plane banked low over the red clay hills of the Jackson Airport, this voice rose in me which said, it's good to be back in Mississippi. And I was, I was, I was absolutely flummoxed by this, and I, I said to myself, are you crazy? You know, what would be good about coming back? And then I burst into tears, because it was so true that um, the state had a strange hold on all of us. It was probably the quality of life in the black communities that we experienced, the warmth and hospitality of our black hosts, and something about that very rural, very warm, very real kind of uh, existence that we found, felt all around us. The summer volunteers had their lives, I think, permanently changed. They went back. They changed their professions. They became doctors, lawyers, um, social workers, hospital workers. They did all kinds of things that reflected a, a, a new commitment to uh, human liberation. 
And that all came out of the, uh, really out of the Mississippi movement. There's a photograph in the book of uh, Mario Savio, who was just an anonymous summer volunteer taking a bath at a pump behind the Freedom House. The next year, Mario went back to the University of California at Berkeley and founded the free speech movement when he was prevented by the Berkeley authorities from having a, 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 a stand on Sproul Plaza where he could collect money from Mississippi. And the free speech movement spread to virtually every college campus in the U.S. Um, the anti-war movement of the 60s really grew out of Mississippi. Um, there was a, um, The women's movement got its first expression, at least the modern women's movement, in uh, a letter that uh, four SNCC women wrote protesting the way they were treated uh, within the movement. So it was it was a, a generating ground for all kinds of social action and uh, uh, social experiences that followed upon it. Why this book now? I mean, yes, it is it is the fiftieth anniversary of Freedom Summer, certainly. But you've had these pictures. You you've thought about this for a long time. Why now? Well, <laughs> that's kind of a hard question to answer. Uh, first of all, I didn't have the pictures all, all for a long time. Uh, they were reportedly lost by my agency for 25 years. Wow. And one day this battered cardboard box arrived on my doorstep. Somebody had opened a filing cabinet that had been closed for 25 years and discovered all these pictures. And I think they were a little embarrassed, and they just dumped them all in a box and sent them to me. Thousands of negatives, vintage prints, contact sheets, and so on. And I realized then that I actually had a collection, not just a scattering of mementos from that period. Uh, and it took me a while to realize that what we had done that summer had some historic uh, 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 value. And finally, somebody wanted to do a show of uh, Southern documentary work, and I thought, hmm, well, that's kind of interesting. So then I got started on the book, and it took me about three years to write it and uh, lay it out and do all the stuff you do with the book. So here I am. <laughs> and, uh, I guess I was goaded by the fact that uh, if it came out after the 50th anniversary, it would be pretty useless. So that was the final push to get it published. And how do you, f finally, how do you see it in the context of where things are today in places like Mississippi? Well, it's interesting. I've been back to Mississippi a few times. Um, there was a quality that was missing in my visits, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it, and somebody finally said, it's clear it, the terror is gone, and that was true. You never, you no longer drove around the state wondering if a highway patrolman was going to pull you off to the side and take a whack at you just because uh, he didn't like your activities. Uh, so uh, the terror was gone. There was a measure of acceptance of quite a lot of it, actually acceptance of integration in Mississippi. There was still economic disparity. 
so I think we accomplished quite a lot in the civil rights movement, certainly more than we expected. I don't think any of us knew how it would work out. Uh, but today, uh, some of the same issues have come back. Uh, the country is facing increasing uh, uh, disparity in income and privilege. Uh, voting rights, once again, are under assault. Uh, it's, it's almost like we've got to start all over on some things. On the other hand... I think there's a, a, an acceptance of, um, of, of integration and, and human rights in this country that is uh, new and different. I'm, I'm encouraged more by what I see among young kids than what I see in Washington. I think the politics are lagging far behind the country as a whole. When I look at high school kids today, and maybe I'm talking more about the Bay Area, but I'm, I'm not sure about that. There's an acceptance of race. There's an acceptance of gender. There's an exception, acceptance of different modes of sexuality that um, uh, would have seemed weird and strange and impossible 50 years ago. So I think we've made progress, but there's a lot of work to be done. If uh, the, the uh, civil rights era has any message for today, it's this, that... It doesn't take an army to start social change. I mean, we were few, and uh, uh, we were essentially without financial backing or any obvious power, but we had the power of conviction, and we had the willingness to uh, go to jail and suffer in other ways for our convictions. And in the end, that prevailed, and the same the same uh, forces can prevail today. And people need to understand that they can take uh, their destiny into their hands and make changes in this country. And, you know, personally, I think we're long overdue for major changes. Uh, time will tell <laughs> whether I'm right or not. But social movements like this are, are uh, difficult to predict. Uh, I thought when the 99% movement got started, maybe that was the beginning of real change in this country, and it turned out it wasn't. But I'm hopeful that um, there'll be uh, <clears throat> new developments and that young kids today will finally decide that it's time to uh, uh, change the way Americans live a bit. Matt Heron. The book is Mississippi Eyes, the story and photography of the Southern Documentary Project. Matt, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, it's been a great pleasure, Jeff. Thank and, you. Uh, I hope people like the book. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 